beloved congregation. In Ezekiel 16, the prophet describes in great detail the history of God's chosen nation. From the day that Jehovah found her and took her to be his bride. But also it tells us of her apostasy and her eventual restoration. From the moment the Lord's eyes had looked upon this abandoned, unwashed infant, covered with blood and ready to die, he decided to take care of her, to love her and make her his wife, a special treasure it would be. But instead of appreciating her husband's tender, loving care, the young wife, soon after the marriage, began to cast longing eyes after other lovers. The chapter even says it, so when I say it, it's no exaggeration, but Ezekiel referred to her as a harlot. Two amazing things stand out in this account. First of all, the awful sins of Judah, and secondly, the amazing love and grace of Jehovah. Judah's sins are described here in the strongest imaginable language. The prophet represents her sins as being greater than the sins of Sodom and Samaria. Now, Sodom had already been destroyed along with Gomorrah, you know the story, but also Samaria, the capital of the ten-tribe nation, which had also lived in sin and iniquity for years. Even while Judah was still worshiping God, Samaria had gone farther even into sin and therefore had to be taken into exile. But Judah eventually also became very wicked indeed. The amazing love and grace of Jehovah was certainly not deserved when it finally came. The prophet represents her as exceptionally wicked. You notice it was a very long chapter. I did not read the whole account, but what I did read sums this up too. They were wicked indeed. Instead of learning from what had happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and Samaria, Judah looked down upon them thinking that she was better, better than her sisters. Against this dark background, the amazing grace of Jehovah stands out all the more. It is summed up in our text with one word. It is the word, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you. Well, then let us reflect for a few moments on this amazing passage 
which speaks of the divine, the miracle of Judah's repentance. We will look first at the divine origin of that repentance. Secondly, at the clear indicators of that repentance. And thirdly, at the indispensable stimulus for repentance. We can also speak of the gracious initiative of this miracle. Indeed, it was a tremendous thing that happened to God's chosen nation. The the Lord often in his word speaks of the sins of his people, and there are few chapters that are more clear than this one, what we have read this morning, this afternoon. The Bible uses many passages to explain the necessity and the nature of repentance. That was something that Israel and Judah had to do but did not do. A few chapters describe repentance as very clear and complete as this passage before us really does. It speaks not only of the necessity of repentance or its nature, but also its possibility. Repentance, you see, is a miracle. It is a work that we cannot and should not ascribe to man, but to God as the only one who can bring it about. I'm speaking about about true repentance. Repentance that leads to salvation is a saving grace. It is God's gift. It is undeserved by us, but earned by Christ for his church. As the Apostle Peter says in Acts 5, verse 31, where he, speaking of Christ, says, Him, that is Christ, God has exalted to his right hand to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance, then, is indeed a gift. More particularly, it is a gift of the covenant of grace. This is what our text emphasizes for our instruction and comfort, as we shall see. For what is happening here? The Lord, instead of casting off his sinful people forever, is resolved to bring them back to himself And the way to bring them back is through repentance. But how will Jehovah accomplish that with that kind of people, so far gone in iniquity? That stubborn, that sinful people has resisted to him so long already, not heeding his warnings or invitations to turn back to their lawful husband, how can God then persuade that people to come back to him, to repent, to acknowledge their transgressions? Well, this question is answered by our text when we hear the Lord addressing sinful Judah in verse 62. 
where it says, I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. What covenant is the Lord speaking of here? Well, in verse 60, he says, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. There the reference is to the covenant which the Lord made with Israel at Sinai. And yet in the same verse, God speaks of another covenant when he says, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. What the Lord means here is this, that he had made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, but that covenant was essentially a covenant of grace, but Israel had not understood the grace character of it. It had, in fact, come to regard the covenant at Sinai as a covenant of works. Israel had treated it as a kind of working arrangement, or we would call that a labor contract by obeying certain rules and regulations given by God through Moses, they thought that they were entitled to Jehovah's favor and rewards. If they would just make an effort to obey those rules, then they expected that they would be God's people and would inherit the kingdom of God. But they failed to realize that the love and the grace of God in giving them his laws was meant for their eternal good and not just the matter of trying to obey those laws and thinking that that was their salvation, that their righteousness depended upon their obedience. As long as they th thought of the covenant this way, they would not obey God's law from the heart. And that was the issue. There were some, of course, already in those early days who did love God and did obey him the proper way, from the heart. We think of David and Moses and Daniel and, and others. But the majority of the people, Israel as a nation, and especially their leadership, they were people who thought they could earn God's favor by being observant, by being obedient to the rules in an outward sense. They failed to recognize in all of this the love and the grace of God in giving them his law. But as long as they, they thought of the covenant this way, they, they would only give an external effort of obedience they might at best, at very best, keep the law outwardly, going by the letter of the law. But as this chapter shows, they did not even do that most of the time. But that also meant and implied that though they would be called to repentance on a regular basis, they would not repent and could not repent from the heart either unless they would undergo a real change 
they could not repent the way they were supposed to. And that is also true of us. By nature, we are no different. As long as we, we look upon God's covenant as basically a covenant of works, it is impossible for us to come to true repentance. But now to bring about such a repentance, the Lord said, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. And what was that covenant? Basically the same as the old but improved, changed. Something was added to it. In Ezekiel 36, let's look at that for a moment. Ezekiel 36, we have this discussion on the new covenant. There we, we read in verse 26 or 25, Then, when I will make that new covenant, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. And a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Similar statements, of course, are are made also in Jeremiah 31. And in the New Testament, we have that uh, chapter in Hebrews, uh, that is um, Hebrews chapter 8, where the, the apostle talks about that same story of the new covenant. When he says there in verse 6 that God has obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon, upon better promises. And verse 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people." Now, it is always often difficult for people to understand what is going on here between that original covenant at Sinai and the covenant that he speaks of as the new covenant. They are basically the same but different as far as the, the promises are concerned and God's response to the unbelief of the Israelites and seeing them laboring in lawful things, but with the idea that they can save themselves by their own works. And of course, that was exactly the case with the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes in the New Testament. They built their righteousness solidly on their obedience, but it had nothing to do with the heart. But now God, in his great mercy, would come with the new, uh, the new um, condition the new addition of working within their heart. I will give you a new heart. And then, and then alone, true repentance is possible. Now, here we have the divine origin of repentance. And even many other blessings, or all blessings of salvation. 
It is only when God remembers His new covenant and puts His Spirit within us to love the Lord and to repent in the right way. You know, what we often think of when we talk about repentance is that we must live according to the law. And that is true. And we know that there are certain sins, or any sins really, that we do will bring God's wrath and displeasure upon us. And so we will try to, to resist sin and temptation, but not so much, or not at all really, out of true love to God, but out of fear of punishment, fear of the consequences. But that does not happen when the Lord gives us a new heart. Then we begin to repent and to believe in a different way because of love to God, which arises from God's love to us. And so in verse 60, Ezekiel says, the Lord speaks through Ezekiel, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. Then already God's, God's intentions were to, to be the God of a people that would love him, but many of them didn't. In congregation, that is what this chapter is all about, about how we should repent and whether we can repent unless we have the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts through the new birth. The Lord says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, when I establish my covenant with you, the result will be that you will know who I am. Well, they knew God, didn't they? Not really. Not really. And that is still so, so true with us. When the Lord begins a saving work in us, he reveals himself to us as he really is. And the first thing that we learn when the Spirit begins to work in us is that God is God. By nature, we don't know that. We may think we do. But then God is more or less a concept, an idea, some deity, some remote being who is the creator of the world and who is also the rewarder of those who, work with, who obey him. But then you don't really know God. We may have heard much about God, of course, through Sunday school and catechism, and that's all very good. But we need to know God and who he really is. We may even have acquired a considerable knowledge of him. But that is still not the same thing as knowing him. It is only when God, through his spirit, reveals himself to us that we come to know him. Then we learn that he is the sovereign God who can save me or condemn me. 
who will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. That's the awesome God of the Bible. And by nature, we don't really like that kind of God. Proud man refuses to bow down and to submit to a God who is sovereign, a God who insists on absolute obedience to his will and law. It is only grace that enables us to do this. Now, this means, let me simplify what I'm trying to say. When I see who I am before God, I can only amaze, be amazed that he has not cast me out of his sight yet. When I see his justice, his righteousness, his holiness, his hatred against sin, then I am afraid of that God. True, I also come to see the love of God when the Spirit works in me. Then I come to see also his mercy and his grace. But I cannot understand that God is love until I am broken and humbled to the dust. Until I come under a sense of my sin and until I realize that my sin deserves the punishment of hell. When the Holy Spirit then reveals that for such hell-deserving sinners, God has opened a way of salvation in Christ, then I begin to see something of his love. Even if I don't dare to believe yet that there is salvation for me, that there is a throne of grace that sinners may come to, and go to. There may be, it may be so that I don't even dare to think that the throne of grace is there for me, that there is salvation for such a wretch as I am. Yet, and I know I speak from experience when I was a teenager, I went through all these stages too of knowing that God is holy, but then there were a time when I came to see through the preaching on Sundays that, that, there is, that there is salvation for lost sinners, that God has provided a Savior who can bring me to him through repentance and faith. And then there were questions, and you have those questions too, or some of you, many of you, is that really true for me? But the fact is that you know then at that time already that there is a way of salvation. Well, after I come to know myself, I will also come to know the Lord. It says here, you shall know that I am the Lord. God says that. But then he goes on to say that you may remember and be ashamed and never, never open your mouth anymore because of your shame. John Calvin, in his Institutes, begins that book by saying, self-knowledge goes together with knowledge of God. Or, to say it exactly, no, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves 
those two are interrelated. You cannot have the one without the other. But first, there is remembrance. The Lord says, I will establish my covenant with you in order that you may remember. What does that mean? Well, true repentance begins when a sinner becomes thoughtful, when he begins, begins to be reflective. As David says in Psalm 119, I thought about my ways and turned my feet to thy testimonies. Psalm 119, verse 59. And the Bible repeatedly exhorts us to consider or think about our ways. But as long as we are left to ourselves, we don't do that. We forget God. And we don't want to remember the sins that we have committed against him. But when the Lord begins a good work in us, he makes us remember our sins. When the prodigal son was in that far country of sin and had spent all his money, he came to himself. Luke puts it that way. He came to himself. He began to think seriously about the predicament that he was in because of his sin. Today we would say he had a reality check. What he had refused to do for a long time, he now was ready to do. Sitting there at the swine trough. I'm in a mess, he said to himself, because I have sinned. Such remembering of sins involves two things, basically, illumination and conviction. What we first need as the Holy Spirit is working in us, what we first need is ISAF. Remember Revelation 3, 18? That the people there, they thought they were okay. They had no need of anything. Good Christians. But the Lord says, what you need is ISAF, whereby your eyes are opened so that you may see and understand your true state and condition. Let me give an illustration. Before repentance, we are like a man sleeping in a dark pit. There are all kinds of snakes there in that pit. So he is not afraid of them because he is asleep. But as soon as, as sunlight enters that pit, those venomous beasts are poised to strike him and he is frightened out of his wits. So it is with the sinner before his conversion. He sleeps in the darkness of innocence, of ignorance, rather. In the darkness also of, of error and, and unbelief. But as soon as a beam of spiritual light breaks in upon his mind and conscience, he sees his sins and therefore he senses the danger he is in. You all know that beautiful hymn of McChain when he says, I once 
was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load until, McChain adds, free grace awoke me by light from on high. Then legal fear shook me. I trembled to die. And that is what happened to David also. My sin is ever before me, he complains in Psalm 51. The ghost of Uriah, the memory of his murder and adultery, would not leave him for a moment. And that is now the remembrance spoken of here in our text. You shall know, the Lord says, that I am the Lord. That or in order that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame. And beloved, that is another ingredient of true repentance. A sense of shame takes hold of the penitent sinner who is overwhelmed by the the realization of his sins. In Ezra chapter 9 verse 6, we hear Israel's scribe confessing his sins and those of his people this way. He says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespass is grown up under heaven. And that is now what Judah also experienced in Ezekiel's time. Sin, you see, brings shame. It brings also confusion. The word confounded, as mentioned here, means confused or perplexed, bewildered even. When you see how much sin you have done against the Lord, then you don't know it anymore. You don't know what to do anymore. Judah did not know that either. How can God forgive such sinners as we all are? You know, then something like this happens, what we find also in Lord's Day 5 of our catechism. Then the question becomes, is there no way by which I may escape the punishment that I deserve and be again received unto favor with God? True penitents, they know they are guilty and accept the righteous judgment of God against sin. And that congregation is what our text means when it says, you will remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame. But that does not contradict what I just said, namely that a sinner will cry out for mercy. But he is silent in the sense that he will no longer come with excuses for his sinful behavior. He does not complain about his lot or protest that, that God's punishment is, is too severe. That sinner knows that he deserved God's wrath. As we read also in Jeremiah's Lamentation, chapter 3. Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his iniquity? The self-condemned penitent silently submits to whatever God will do to him. He will agree with God. 
He will take God's side against himself, justifying God and condemning himself. And the reason for that is that, as Paul says in Romans 3.19, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Congregation, what do you know about these things? About true repentance? Maybe someone will say, I realize that I need that kind of repentance, but I cannot produce it. I can't work up such feelings and experiences by myself. And you are right. You can't. Yet it has to come to that in your life or you will not be saved. But let me now explain how true repentance is produced and by whom. True repentance, congregation, takes place when your eyes are opened not only for your sins, but also for the mercy and the compassion of God. The God against you have sinned. I can put it this way too. When you no longer see God as your enemy, who is angry with you, but as a loving God who is reconciled to you in Christ. And that is now the meaning of the last part of our text. Let's read the entire passage again. Verse 62. It says there, I will establish my covenant, etc., when I am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, saith the Lord. What does that mean? Pacified? Here we have what is called, we call the incentive or the motivation behind Judah's repentance. That which precipitates it. Let me say it this way. As long as we think of God as our enemy and judge, we will not experience true repentance. All the threatenings of the law cannot produce one tear of true sorrow for sin. We may get scared and try to change our sinful ways out of fear of the punishment that is to follow, And then the best we can come up with is legal or legalistic repentance. But true evangelical saving repentance comes only when I see that God is pacified toward me. What does that word pacify mean? Well, when I see that God has made an an atonement, when he makes a sacrifice whereby our sins are forgiven. The word atonement in the Hebrew means covering. The blood that was shed in the temple, in the tabernacle, that was shed, that covered the Ark of the Covenant. And so it is in the New Testament. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. 
the blood that was sprinkled by the high priest on the mercy seat covered the sins of the people then living, the, Jew, the, the, the Jews. But in this way, atonement was made, and God was pacified or reconciled to his Old Testament people. And this, of course, pointed forward to what Christ would do in the fullness of time. On Calvary's cross, Christ made a full and and perfect atonement for the sins of his people. That is, the gospel that was preached already during the Old Testament dispensation in types and shadows by which which is more clearly proclaimed in the New Testament era of fulfillment. And that gospel, that pacification idea, is being proclaimed also this very day, also in this church, in your hearing. It is a gospel or good news that God has found a way whereby sinners who deserve eternal death can now receive eternal life. That way called for the second person of the Trinity to assume human nature so that in that nature he could shed his blood to make peace or to pacify God and bring sinful man back to God. Oh, it is true that when God says, I am pacified, Christ had not yet died on the cross. But since he had accepted his Father's appointment to become the Savior of his people back in eternity in the covenant of redemption, it was as good as done as far as God the Father was concerned. He could now say to sinners living in Ezekiel's time, I am pacified, I am reconciled. That means that we who live after Christ's coming into the world, after he has laid down his life, may tell you with even more emphasis and conviction, God is pacified. God is reconciled with sinners. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Notice what it says here. God was in Christ, reconciling the world. It is something that has taken place 2,000 years ago. It is a fait accompli, an accomplished fact, not something that still needs to be done, certainly not something that he will do, and now listen carefully, not something that he will do in response to our repentance. Some people seem to think that they can move God to forgive their sins by their tears, by their remorse, by their efforts to mend their ways. Legal repentance again. What they are really doing is trying to pacify God by their works. But our text says it is the opposite. God is moving us to repentance by telling us that he was pacified by the work of his son and that on the basis of that work he can now offer us Forgiveness of our sins, peace and friendship with him, and eternal life. And that's why he wants his servants, the ministers of the gospel, 
to put all the emphasis on this offer and on the sinner's duty to accept it. Paul certainly knew that was his responsibility because he says in 2 Corinthians again, now then, he writes, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Allow my pacification, the sacrifice of my son, to legally now also save you. As Paul says in Romans 3, that God now can be just to those to save those who believe in Christ. It's all the basis of justice. But now the question is, and that is what I will say finally, to whom does the apostle say this? To whom does this offer come? Well, to the elect, some people say. Yes, it is true. If Christ died for his elect only, then the gospel can only be attended, intended for them, those chosen from eternity. Now, that may sound logical, but that is not what the Bible teaches here in our text and in many other places as well. Go preach the gospel to every creature the Savior told his disciples. Unto you is the word of this salvation sent. And Paul says to his audience in the synagogue of Antioch, to you, man, to you, woman, to you, young people and children, every creature, no matter how sinful and deeply fallen may be, may be told this good news. Judah was very sinful, as we have seen this afternoon. Yet the Lord says to them, I am pacified toward you for all that you have done. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. Does that now mean that everyone to whom the gospel comes will be saved? No. Only those will be saved who believe that gospel, who embrace the Christ offered in it with their whole heart. Such people will not only believe, but also repent, and their repentance will flow from their faith in a gracious, merciful, and loving God. Congregation, this is the good news. Do you believe it? Are you a sinner? Do you realize what you deserve? But do you also see, and may the Lord open your eyes for it, the love of Jesus towards the chief of sinners, like these people in Judah, like people like we are. Sin is a constant problem. Even for believers, they still sin but they are sorry for their sins. But if you sin and are not sorrow and do not cry out to God, woe be to you, because there is a day of judgment to come. And then those who have refused the Lord Jesus and his loving sacrifice on the cross. I don't know what to say about that. You know. You understand. 
there is only one way out for you. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Embrace that Savior who loves you and who wants to take you into his arms. Amen.